handling this text here of Hebrews 2 is a little bit different for me uh, than handling perhaps the other passages I have an opportunity to handle to this point. And it is because as I approach this text, um, it's been used tremendously uh, at different points in my life and walk with the Lord uh, as a source of real encouragement for me. Um, The message in this text is simple, very simple. Each one of you could, if possibly did, read it this morning and be able to reap tremendous benefit from its simplicity. It's very accessible. Each one of us can look at this stated propositions in this passage, and we have a point of access to this text and what it means. So we gather today to hear a simple and accessible yet equally lovely text of Scripture. The text begins by pointing out two points of ordeal or crisis in each one of our lives. It'll explain the ordeal number one. And this is just by way of introduction. It's not even an outline. It's just you, you could have sat down and possibly did sit down and read this. And you saw he speaks of two ordeals in this text that you've covered. And that is your original condition by birth. It's described there, if you look, it's described there as being uh, subject to lifelong slavery. Ordeal number one. Each one of us are in that ordeal or in that temptation by birth, subject to lifelong slavery, a fear of dying, a fear of death, a fear of what is to become. And then it creates a lifestyle of lifelong slavery to this fear, to this concern. And then a lifestyle and pattern and existence follows. The second crisis or ordeal within the text that the word of the Lord is directly speaking to you this morning is also essentially by birth. That is the ordeal of living. Right? Being alive. With our children, we think, you know, we want to, as best as we can, manage risk. Limit ordeals. Yet when you step back with your children coming in bloodied and battered and beaten by doing who knows what in the backyard, you realize that there there isn't really a way to eliminate risk, ordeal, temptation, trial. Because you find out that's what it means to be alive and living is ordeal and temptation and trial by birth. Life from cradle to grave is risk-taking, filled with ordeal, trial, and temptation. So when you look at this passage, I, I, am, I, I want to, to encourage you with this text. No one in this room is immune to these two ordeals. By birth, the ordeal of being subject to lifelong slavery. Outside of Christ, it will continue a life of slavery. And then even as a believer hidden in Christ, there is an 
great life of ordeal and temptation that follows. You're susceptible to despair, trial, temptation. You're still human and susceptible to all of these ordeals. However, for the believer, that is the one hidden in Christ, these ongoing ordeals and temptation can begin to create a spirit of doubt and discouragement. The way you manage that ordeal or spirit of temptation, and you begin to doubt. And you ask questions, at least for me, this is how, again, as I share with you personally the journey that I've experienced with this text, this word of the Lord, how it's meant so much to me at different points in my life. And that is questions that tend to surface, whether they're verbalized or heartfelt, are questions something along the lines of this, does God understand what I am going through? I imagine by birth, each of us, being alive, have wondered that within our journey of faith. Does God understand what I am going through? Another question that I have arrived at various points within my life. Does he know where I am at in this valley, in this temptation, in this trial, and in this ordeal? Does he know where I am? Does he understand? And does he know where I am? in this dark cloud of providence. Because again, we're all in spirit, in times of ordeal or temptation. They create feelings of doubt. Finally, for me, I kind of come to these points or have come to these points where the question is, does he really care? Even does he know where I am or is he cognizant of of, of what's befalling me and how I'm responding? But does he really care? I've experienced that. And I know by birth, you have as well. Does he really care? A struggle of our faith in these challenges. I just want to walk through this text with you and take these questions to the text and be strengthened together that he does know, he does understand, and he does care. The way that we know that is dead center of this text. This is going to sound weird. But the concentrated interest of this passage for you as the Apostle writes for each of us. The concentrated interest for you in this text is 16b. That's kind of a strange way to put it. Do you see 16b? That's the concentrated interest of this text for you, for me. If I could encourage anyone this morning that is feeling a season of doubt or discouragement, concern, or worry, I would encourage you with what I am also encouraged from the Apostle 
16b. He helps the offspring of Abraham. Don't pass by it too quickly. Think of who the Lord is. We have covered him in chapter 1. Prophet, priest, and king. You find out that hallelujah, praise the Son, praise the risen Son of God. We're singing this. This confession we make in song is he who simply stated helps the offspring of Abraham. The risen Lord, him, and earlier in chapter 2, by whom and for whom all things exist, that risen Lord helps the offspring of Abraham. He does know, he does understand, and he does care. Furthermore, he helps. This is the concentrated interest of the passage that you would this morning, having read it, now having heard it, would walk away by faith embracing it. He helps the offspring of Abraham. Now I just want to develop how the preacher that is apostle to the Hebrews develops it for us so that we will know exactly how he helps the offspring of Abraham. Not so that we would just be cognizant of it, but in times of trial, doubt, discouragement, we would go to 16b. Now you're going to say, I'm going to write that down, and when I'm going through a time of discouragement and doubt, I'm going to write out 16b, Hebrews 2, 16b. He helps the offspring of Abraham. And I am one of them. And so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. He helps the offspring of Abraham. This is the concentration of the text. Let's concentrate on it for a few more minutes. How has he helped? Let's look at the text together of how he has helped, and we'll sew the passage together. So we'll start with 14 and eight, uh, through 18, and we'll peel it apart into two portions, and we'll put it back together as we begin from 16b. 16 is going up, and 16 is going down. The crux of the matter is he helps the offspring of Abraham. That's the centerpiece of the text. And now he develops for us in 14 just exactly how he helps the offspring of Abraham. The first portion is, he has helped. So we put it in past tense historically. He has helped the offspring of Abraham. Look at verse 14. Since therefore the children, we've been dealing with the children, that is the congregation of the elect, since verse uh, 9. Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by grace he might taste death for everyone. And we find out the description of everyone, indeed, to be the children. So here we join yet again of what Jesus has done for the children. Verse 14, since therefore the children, the congregation, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Look at the repeat of his help in this same manner of becoming flesh and blood, as it's described in verse 17. Remember, 16, B, he helps. And he describes the help both ways. Verse 17, 
he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So you find out how he has helped. How? How has he helped me? How has he done it? When I hear he helps, I say, how has he helped? And the writer says, by being made just like you. He entered into time and partook of the same things that you partake in. Flesh and blood. In order that he might help. He had to, secondly, verse 17, be made like the children. He had to be made like them in every respect. So you find out that your help began in the incarnation. Now you're heading into the Christmas season, at least every department store would have you to believe that. Right? You're entering in the season of the incarnation. And now you're thinking the miracle of the incarnation is that he entered into time to help me. He helps the offspring of Abraham by one, becoming just like them. That's the mystery of the incarnation, taking upon flesh and dwelling among us. He assumed our nature so that he might live the life that you should have lived. That he then would die the death that you deserve to die. That being raised, you might rest in his death and in his life and so be received of God. That is the gospel. It's described in verse 18, or excuse me, verse 17, in the very last statement of verse 17, describing the help of him who was made just like us. Look what he did in being made like us. Made propitiation for the sins of the people. How has he helped me? By being made like me living the life that I should have lived, died the death that I deserved, and in so doing, brought me to peace with God. He made propitiation for me. This is how he has proved himself to be the helper of the offspring of Abraham. This is the mystery of the Incarnation that he might help you. One writer describes it, that he partook of flesh and blood so that he might be enabled to taste death for the children's salvation. How has he helped? Through the incarnation, by being made like me. The next portion in the text as we look at how he did so through the incarnation, that is the purpose of him being flesh and blood, is to save the children. The next portion in the text is that 
when he saved us, when he delivered us, when he helped us in this first portion is definitively the moment of the cross. Look with me in verses 14 and 15 yet again as we look at the decisive moment when he helped us. Verse 14, Since therefore the children, once again, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This is his help to the offspring of Abraham is the moment of the cross. The moment of the cross proves Jesus to be the champion of Jacob, to be the champion of Israel, to be the champion of the people of God. You are in flesh and blood. He likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood. That he might be your champion, delivering you from your enemy and destroying your enemy. This is his help to the offspring of Abraham. His cross brings a necessary double cure. Look at the text of the double cure. Can somebody notice, just looking at this text, the two points of the cross's accomplishment? Through death, again, you're just sitting down and reading this text in a moment of discouragement. You find out as you turn to this text of worry and concern, you come to this text and you see through death, now you're thinking as a believer, the moment of the cross of Christ. He became like me, that he might live for me and then offer himself in my place. Through death. This is how you're reading it as a Christian. Reading the gospel. Through death. You're thinking the cross. Look what he did in this double cure. He destroyed the one who has the power of death. Destruction number one. He destroyed his enemy and yours. It's simple, isn't it? You're looking at it and you're saying, I could have read this at home. He got off easy today. You just walk right through every, the words. It's like, well, yeah, this is obvious. Yeah, right, high five. Embrace it by faith. No reason to salt it up. It's right here. The truth of the gospel. Through the cross, he destroyed his enemy and yours. How has he helped me? This is how. Destroying his enemy and yours. Look at the second, the second portion. So through the cross, the moment of Christ's cross, that we're going to celebrate together at the table. He destroyed the one who has the power of death. That is, in case you missed it, the devil. And secondly, 
He delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He destroyed your enemy and he delivered your soul as the champion of Jacob. This is no small feat. I fear the people of God can hear the gospel or, or, or think momentarily in snippets of the gospel and lose its weightiness. By faith might we be drawn back to a text such as this to rehearse how has he helped me destroying my enemy and delivering me from his captivity. And he did it through the cross. And he can't do it upon the cross lest he take every measure to be made like me. This is the beauty of the incarnation. This is built, as we said, the book of Hebrews goes back and forth, right? In proving how Christ is better. And the theme of the book to be consider Jesus as opposed to cultic practices in Israel in this first century of turning back to the high priest, turning back to uh, raw ceremonialism and, and coming. But it's drawing you to a savior. Not simply uh, events of atonement, but he who has atoned. Looking to Jesus, considering Jesus. And we've looked again and again from chapter 1 through to where we are at in chapter 2 and how he argues from the Old Testament. Indeed, he is better. He is more glorious. He is the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. Turn to Jesus and don't turn back. Consider Jesus here in this text about he who destroys and delivers would draw the original readers to Isaiah 49. Let me read for you, if you wish to jot it down, Isaiah 49, 24 through 26, but I want to take the time to turn there. But in this double cure of the cross of Christ, listen to the text of Isaiah 49. Can plunder be taken from a champion? Or captives rescued from a tyrant? This is what the Lord says. Yes, captives will be taken from the champion and plunder retrieved from the tyrants. I will contend with those who contend with you and your children I will rescue. Then all humankind will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, your Redeemer. I am the champion of Jacob. This is Isaiah 49. And the question posed, can captives really be taken? Can a tyrant really be plundered? This is what the Lord says. Yes. And I will do so. We go from Isaiah 49 to the incarnation of Christ. Verse 14, Hebrews 2. And he took upon himself flesh and blood to do exactly that. Take the captives back and destroy the tyrant plundering his house. 
And he did it through the cross. We went through the book of Revelation um, a while ago now. But you remember these two images of the cross appear in Revelation 12 and Revelation 20, where this same reality is being described in Revelation 12. Do you remember what happened to the dragon as a result of Christ's cross and resurrection? Do you remember what happened to him? What happened to Satan in Revelation 12 because of the cross of Christ? He no longer had access to accuse the brethren. He was, in Revelation 12, cast down. Do you remember how Christ described it in his ministry in the Gospels? What was Christ doing in his ministry? Binding up the strong man. In order to do what? Plunder his house. And Revelation 20 is the same image as chapter 12. But you remember the images are a little bit different. Satan's not just cast down in Revelation 12 as 20, but in 20 he is actually chained in a bottomless pit, in the great abyss. All as a result of Christ's work on the cross. He's destroyed his enemy and he is delivering his captives. How has he helped me by being made like me that he might die and save me? Jesus helps the offspring of Abraham. Rescue is the portion of 14 through 16 of the delivering work of Christ of how he helps the offspring of Abraham. Let me read the text for you, 14, 15, and then 16, and then move from 16 down. Look at this simple and accessible yet lovely text about how Jesus helps the offspring of Abraham. Verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Here's your purpose or action. That through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those through fear of death or subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps. Now why would he say that? Because remember they've been doing this issue of the servants, which are angels, versus the son, who is Jesus. Explaining that angels are not on par with Christ. Here he speaks of how surely it's not the angels that he's helping along these lines. Why? Because angels are not subject to the fear of death. Lifelong slavery is not their existence in the fear of death. They're not flesh and blood, but it's the children who are flesh and blood. Who are subject to lifelong slavery and fear of death. Who are susceptible to every type of ordeal and trial and temptation. It's the children. So, verse 17, therefore, since it's the children that he helps, the same thing. He doesn't want us, the, the apostle doesn't want us to lose focus of the incarnation. It's not just for Christmas time. Therefore, since he helps the offspring of Abraham, 
he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Do you see the the high repetition right there? We just saw it, and you're saying, yeah, you're repeating it like a thousand times. Exactly. Don't skip it. Don't miss it. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Yet, notice the difference here about how he has helped moves to how he continues to help. So that, here is your purpose. He was made, not just that he has helped, but so that he might become, that is, he continues to help, a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Here the accent upon the incarnation is empathy. Does he care? Does he understand? Does he know? Yes. How do I know that? Because he had to be made like his brothers, like you, that he might be merciful and faithful for you as a high priest in the service to God. That is, that he might empathize with your weaknesses. That is, that in the incarnation, not only has Jesus entered into your condition to rescue you from sin, but also to empathize with your weakness and frailty. This is what we're celebrating at the Lord's table. Not a champion who showed up in the first century, did something neat, and flew off. But the reality of a Savior entered into time that He might save you from your sin, destroy His enemy and yours, deliver you from a kingdom of darkness, and bring you into a kingdom of light. That then, as your King, He is also your High Priest who not only atoned with something, but himself is the atonement. And then stands on your behalf in service to God. How has he helped me? He has helped and he continues to help as my high priest in service to God. He empathizes with me. When my, when my grandmother uh, passed away, it was a long time ago, I, I, uh, April of 87, so I was, uh, yeah, I would have been seven years old. During that time, it, it, was a, it, was a, it was a hard time. Each of you have probably experienced um, some measure of relational uh, death. Someone's died in your family, someone close to you, or uh, you know, it's something, again, that by birth we can't escape. Experiencing difficulty and hardship when someone passes. Or we have other moments of trauma in our lives that are nearly as difficult. Um, I remember during that time, not a lot, but I do remember with my mother, it was very hard on her at the loss of her mother. And I remember in our home just it taking on a, a, a real significance. And, and 
as a seven-year-old looking on. Something stands out to me during that time, and that was the response. I remember my mom having a hard time, a difficult experience with people who were trying to show empathy. And there's a measure there that we're always walking on eggshells, trying to be encouragers, trying to empower, trying to say a word, but then there's certain circumstances where we all recognize it's better maybe to reserve the comment than give it, because we think it's going to put them right over the hump of encouragement, or discouragement, into encouragement, because we want to show them that we can empathize. And so it comes from the right place, but oftentimes we recognize that those almost turn around to be points of anger. The person who is going through a difficult situation, you say, I understand how you feel. Have you ever experienced that? Or been witness to that? And the person hearing that encouragement becomes perhaps even more discouraged from the standpoint of, you don't know how I feel. You can't know how I feel. You haven't lost your mother. Or you haven't had your parents divorce. You haven't lost your job. You don't know how I feel. In those moments, We do have one who can empathize and does know how we feel. Who can identify with our weakness, with our sorrow, with our frailty. When there's a dark cloud of discouragement, Upward I look and see him there. Because he entered into flesh and blood. He was made like me. That he might be for me. Merciful and faithful to me. In knowing how I feel. The apostle to the Hebrews is sharing with you for the children. He partook of what you have, flesh and blood, that he might help in saving you. And he continues to help in empathizing with you. He isn't one who doesn't know. He does know. He isn't one who doesn't understand. He does understand. And he isn't one who can't really care. He does care. And 16b functions that way in this text. He helps the offspring of Abraham by caring. Yet, his shoulder to rely upon is not one that is weak as yours, 
as frail as yours, as feeble in judgment as yours. It is all-knowing. It is all-powerful. He's not just a friend like you and me. He is your Lord. Who doesn't just know, but he can act. Isn't just there, but provides. Doesn't just know you're going in the valley, but is there with you. And provides for you there all that is necessary. How has he helped the offspring of Abraham? By saving and empathizing. Look specifically at the description of his help. As we come to the Lord's table, cement this in your heart. Verse 17, what kind of priest do we have? The one who can empathize, show compassion and sympathies. How is he described in his help? Merciful and faithful. Faithfulness, coupled with his mercy, he continues unfailingly to help with gentleness and understanding. So the conclusion of the text, verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted in the great ordeal, he is able to help those who are being tempted. What temptation is upon you in this hour? What temptation, what ordeal is upon your faith? What is the challenge that is befalling you? By birth, it occurs. Life is an ordeal. So come to this text and see he is able. Do you notice what that finally requires? The resurrection. Do you see how the writer says it in 18? He is able currently to help because he has been raised. In a moment of great challenge and even little ones, 
Go to Hebrews 2. Read 14 through 18. And rest at 18 for a while. He is able to help those who are being tempted. How has he helped me? Became like me. They might live for me and die in my place. Be raised to continually help me. As he who can empathize with everything that I've gone through.